expected. Let me read our text uh, again, uh, Matthew 6, starting at verse 19. Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Uh, We are continuing in this miniature four-part series before we begin a book study. Uh, We're continuing in this series on the treasure principle. And the treasure principle is we cannot take it with us, but we can send it on ahead. We can't take it with us, but we can send it on ahead. There are six components to this treasure principle. And last time we focused on the first one. Number one, notice, God owns every treasure and we are his investment managers. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7. Let me comment on this first one one more time. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7. For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have, notice, and what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Let me reread that verse from the New Living Translation. For what gives you the right to make such a judgment? What do you have that God hasn't given you? And if everything you have is from God, why boast as though it were not a gift? Meaning, why boast as if it were not a gift from God? That's a good question. Consider all that we have. We have our health, our salvation that matters more than all the rest, our income, our abilities, our marriage, our children, in some cases our grandchildren, our pension plan, our home. Consider that question from verse 7. What do you have that you did not receive? Or what do you have that God hasn't given you? The late apologist R.C. Sproul suggested that there are just two possible answers to that question. One is we did not receive all that we possess. We did not, we didn't receive all that we possess, meaning all that we possess, we have accumulated in and of ourselves. Second possible answer is we did receive all that we possess. We did receive all that we possess, meaning that all we possess was received from someone else outside of ourselves. The first response, we didn't receive all that we possess, is a theological crime because it confuses the creator-creature distinction. God is the only being in this universe that possesses something without first receiving that something from someone else. God is the only self-sufficient being to ever exist. The second response, we did receive all that we possess, is the correct response. Because we do receive all that we possess from someone outside ourselves, and that someone is God. It is one thing to intellectually agree to the statement that God is our source and that we have received all that we possess from Him. It is an entirely another matter to activate that fact in our experiential practice. But we are His investment managers and we are to manage all we have received from Him. Remember the principle from last time. We are to manage the Master's goods for the good of the Master. So, Let's move on to component two. The second part or component to this treasure principle, our heart is where we invest God's treasure. Our heart is where we invest God's treasure. Verse 21 reads, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This might sound like the proverbial question, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? 
Most of the time, the present location of our treasure is indicative of where our heart already is. But then sometimes the relocation of our treasure brings our heart to that same place. And I believe it's permissible for a heart to be in multiple places that are acceptable to God. Some parents have a heart uh, for their child's education. So at the beginning, these parents set aside money each month uh, in a college fund so that their child uh, can attend college and doesn't graduate from college in debt. And that is an honorable thing. My parents didn't do that. I had to borrow money. Um, I don't think I paid off my college loans until my mid-30s. But uh, it's a phenomenal thing if parents are able to do that. Let me, let me cite a hypothetical example. Suppose a stockbroker friend of mine, and this is hypothetical, I don't even have one, he recommended to me that I purchase a sizable, sizable, significant amount of stock in General Motors. And because I trust this man's financial advice, I decide to purchase a large number of shares in GM stock. At the time the market closed this past Friday, GM stock was selling for $52.23 per share. So if I have made a substantial investment in GM stock, then I would then have a sudden and serious interest in General Motors. I would go online probably daily to get the latest updates on GM stock. I want to see if the price is up or down. I would probably call my broker friend often. I might purchase a General Motors product. If I came across a magazine article on GM, I'd probably read the entire thing. The point is, if I invest significant treasure in shares of General Motors stock, then I'm going to have at least a facsimile of interest in what GM is doing. Because GM has some of my treasure, it would also then have some of my heart's affection and attention. And that's not a bad thing unless, unless I start obsessing about it, which I could be tempted to do. We can easily determine exactly where someone's heart is because all we have to do is find his treasure. We can determine where someone's heart is easily. All we have to do is find his treasure. It's recorded in his visa statement. It's recorded in his checkbook. It might be parked in his garage. It might be hanging in the closet. It might be found in his gun safe. It might be in his 401k. There are a thousand and one different locations where someone's heart might be. And we aren't commenting on if someone's heart is in a good location or a bad location or an inconsequential location. No, that's not the emphasis. The emphasis, according to verse 21, is that it's not difficult to determine where someone's heart is because all we have to do is to find the treasure or in more modern vernacular, follow the money. God wants our heart. He isn't just wanting donors to his, contribute to his cause. He wants more than spiritual philanthropists. He wants Christians that are passionate about the things that matter to him. He wants disciples that are immersed in the causes that count. He wants individuals that cannot not imagine investing money, time, and energy in those things that are an eternal. Unfortunately, that's not where most Christians in the West are. Component three to this principle. Heaven and not earth is our actual home. Heaven and not earth is our actual home. In the biblical sense, Christians are said to be citizens of heaven and sojourners and pilgrims on the earth. Christians are citizens of heaven and sojourners and pilgrims on the earth. Notice Philippians 3, verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven. It's interesting, the Greek word translated 
here as. Citizenship is polituma, polituma, and we get our word politics from that ancient word polituma. Some, some of us uh, in a high school or college English literature class might have read a best-selling book called The Man Without a Country. The Man Without a Country. It was a short story from Edward Edward Hale, first published in 1863 in the middle of the Civil War. It was an allegory about that Civil War, and it was meant, intended, to promote the Union cause. That book is about a U.S. Army lieutenant named Philip Nolan that renounced his country. Imagine that. He renounced his country. Now we elect those people to Congress. I have a one-word suggestion for those people that have renounced these United States, either in word or deed. One word, leave. Just leave. Mr. Nolan renounced his country and was being tried for treason. Because he had cursed the name of his country, he was banished. He was sentenced to live aboard a ship and was not permitted to see his native land and not permitted to hear its name and not permitted to hear news about its progress. For 56 years, he went from ship to ship to ship to ship and was finally buried at sea. He was for all practical intent and purposes a man without a country. But a Christian is never without a country because no matter where he is, he is a permanent citizen of heaven. <coughs> I uh, might mention that struggling with my voice, I preached at a <coughs> conference on Friday night and I think I might have overextended <coughs> myself. So... Just, I, I hope it's not too irritating. That's the reason in evangelism I present, uh, sometimes I present people this question. Are you as sure of heaven as if you were already there? Are you as sure of heaven as if you were already there? And the reason that is a legitimate question is because as a Christian, part of us is already there. And that part of us that is in heaven is our citizenship. Our street address might be here, but our citizenship is there. The New Testament then uses different words to describe our present status on this earth. 1 Peter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust. Fleshly lusts are worldly lust. That means be careful in Vegas. What happens in Vegas doesn't stay in Vegas. Heaven hears about it. Sojourner means, this word sojourner means a temporary resident or a resident alien. I understand alien is a word we shouldn't use. Therefore, I will use it. A temporary resident or a resident alien. A sojourner is someone from a foreign country that is a non-permanent resident in another country. Don't miss that. A sojourner is someone from a foreign country that is a non-permanent resident, a temporary resident in another country. His actual home is somewhere else. But he's residing where he is on a temporary basis. I graduated from high school in 1968, so you can do the math. I'm almost as old as dirt. Someone said, I am so old that when I was born, the Dead Sea was only sick. And um, that's, that's old. Our high school had foreign exchange students. I don't even know if that's a thing now. Uh, each class had one. And foreign exchange students were technically sojourners because their actual residence, their permanent residence, was in another country. In our class, our foreign exchange student was from Sweden. But during the school year, he was a temporary resident 
here in the United States because he was just a sojourner. At the end of school, in the spring, he returned to his permanent home in Sweden. In that same sense, as Christian sojourners, our actual home is in heaven. That is our permanent residence. But we are residing temporarily here on this earth. And then notice we are sojourners and also pilgrims. And the word pilgrims means someone that journeys to a foreign land, someone that has relocated to a foreign land in order to establish permanent residence there. A pilgrim is someone that has relocated to a foreign land in order to establish a permanent residence there. The Englishmen that came here on the Mayflower were pilgrims. Supposedly, my mother has done extensive genealogical research into our past, and uh, supposedly, I am related to three people that were aboard the Mayflower. And it is rumored that one of them fell overboard. Sounds like something someone related to me would do. I understand he was rescued, though, so I'm here. Um, those families that were aboard the Mayflower were called pilgrims. Why pilgrims? Because their intention, after departing from England, was to establish residence here, permanent residence here, and not return to England. That's the reasons those pilgrims founded Plymouth Colony in 1620. Those pilgrims immigrated to this continent in order to become permanent residents here. Those pilgrims had no intention of returning to England. As Christians were pilgrims on a journey to another location called heaven and were going there in order to establish a permanent residency. And we have no intention of returning to this present earth. A new earth? Yes, not this present earth. Trust me, no one that goes to heaven would want to return to this present earth. I miss my father very, very much. But I cannot, in good conscience, wish for him to be here after spending two decades in heaven. That would be cruel and unusual punishment for him to return to this mess. It is said that a sojourner is someone away from his home, and a pilgrim is someone on his way home. A sojourner is someone away from his permanent home, and a pilgrim is someone on his way to establish his permanent home. That would be us. As spiritual sojourners on this earth, we are away from our actual home. And as spiritual pilgrims, we are essentially going to our actual home. It's interesting, though, that our actual home is a place none of us have ever been to. But it's still the place we have been made for and the place that has been made for us. Check out heaven. Notice Christ himself is in heaven. Ephesians 1 verse 20. Angels are in heaven. Ephesians 3 verse 10. Our blessings, spiritual blessings, are in heaven. Ephesians 1 verse 3. Our spiritual position is in heaven. Because our position as a Christian is in Christ. We are said to be in Christ, and Christ is in heaven. So our position is there. Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 7. Our permanent residence is in heaven. John 14, verses 1 through 3. And our citizenship is in heaven, as we just mentioned, Philippians 1 and verse 20. Hope and I uh, have a residence. A residence that is now appraised at $200,000 more than we purchased it for just three years ago. That's craziness. But we're not going to sell it because we'd have to move to Oklahoma to afford to buy anything else. And I've been to Oklahoma. So we have a residence 
at 1225 Hapban Court, Gardnerville, Nevada, USA, on the North American continent on planet Earth. That is our residence. But that, although that is our current residence, that is not our actual home. I am a registered citizen of heaven. And that means I'm only a sojourner and a pilgrim on this earth. And that undeniable fact about me is a challenge to current common thinking about treasures. Let me explain. The situation is that where we store our treasures is sometimes contingent on where we perceive our actual home to be. Example, my earth home is in the United States. But suppose I decide to go to Spain to do a three-month preaching tour. This I just selected a random country, never been to Spain. Um, but I'm, I'm going there to preach three solid months. I'm specifically told that I am restricted to bringing just two pieces of luggage on the flight home from Spain. But I can send the honorariums from the speaking engagements home and deposit them into my bank account here in the U.S. Again, this is totally hypothetical. If that were the case, I wouldn't fill my Madrid hotel room with unusual expensive furniture or wall hangings and state-of-the-art electronics because my time in Spain is limited to just three months, and then I'm out of there. Instead, I would probably spend basically only what I needed at that temporary residence in order to be comfortable there and then send the rest of my income back to the U.S. so it would be waiting for me when I returned home. The same logic, since I'm a temporary resident on earth, I should spend basically what I need in order to have a comfortable existence here. Comfortable is a subjective word. Comfortable has a different meaning to different people. And I am not the Holy Spirit, so it is not my business to assess someone's existence as being comfortable. That's a personal matter between someone and God. I should spend, though, what is needed to have a comfortable and enjoyable existence on earth and then send the rest of my treasures on to my actual permanent home in heaven. Remember something, each day that passes, we forget this, each day that passes means we're 24 hours closer to going home. And because life here can sometimes be so difficult and so depressing, it's permissible to get homesick. And that has never been more true than now. It's a mess out there. The logic is that because our citizenship and actual ultimate home is in heaven, and since heaven is eternal, then we should have an eternal perspective. And this brings us to number four. Component four, we're not supposed to live for the dot, but for the line. We're not supposed to live for the dot, but for the line. If you forget everything else I say, Please don't forget this part. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11. He, meaning God, has put eternity in their hearts. God made man to have an eternal purpose. And he put a conscious awareness of the eternal inside us. And nothing else on this earth outside of that divine eternal purpose can bring us complete satisfaction. That's the reason Colossians 3 verse 2 reads, set your mind on things above, meaning heaven, and not on things on the earth. The things above are referring to heaven and the eternal state, and things on earth are referring to this present temporary existence. That verse means that our determined focus on earth now is to be on heaven and the eternal and not just on the earth and the present here and now. The logic is that because our citizenship and our actual ultimate home is in heaven and since heaven is eternal, then we should have an eternal perspective. 
An eternal perspective is, in an analogous sense, focusing on the line and not on the dot. Someone's life consists of two distinct phases, and those phases are a dot and a line. Now, this is a visual aid. We have used this before. I don't remember when, but I know I have. This is a visual aid. This needs to be repeated and repeated and repeated. I hope none of us ever forget this illustration. Notice on the note sheet, the dot represents the Christian's life on earth. And the line represents his life in heaven. The dot, our life on this present earth. And the line, our ultimate life in heaven. Someone's life on this earth, no matter how long it is, and it is true, people are aging longer and longer. I just read, I hadn't told Hopi, the oldest identical twin sisters. The oldest identical twin are sisters from Japan. They are 107 years and 300 days of age. That's old. But no matter how long life is here on this earth, it is represented through a dot. And that's because a dot has a definite beginning and a definite ending. Our time here has a definite beginning and a definite ending. Our definite beginning is conception. Human life begins at conception. And that's the reason abortion is wrong. Human life ends at death. So we have a beginning, we have an ending. And so... It's best represented in a dot. And in a comparative sense, notice that dot is extremely small. Because from that dot extends a line that goes on and on off the page, on through infinity, and that means this line doesn't ever end. The line represents the Christian's experience in heaven because it is eternal. Something interesting I'm finding. Uh, people that uh, have traditional values and conservative opinions, some of them are still non-theist or atheist. These people have respect for Christians and for Christianity, but haven't adopted it, but respect us. Uh, Joy Behart is not one of those, though. <laughs> But, but this atheistic position is a sad one because the atheistic position is that to die means the end of someone's existence. According to atheism, death means to cease to exist. So all that we have under that philosophy is the now. There is no afterlife. Paul commented on that perspective in 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 19, he made this statement, If in this life only, that word only is critical to understanding this verse. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. Pitiable means miserable. That means if our hope in Jesus is just applicable to the here and now. If our hope in Jesus doesn't take us past this life onto something better after this life, then we are most pitiable. Pitiable means pitiful and miserable. So why would this be? Why would we be so miserable? Because receiving Jesus is the most significant thing that can happen to someone. So it's a shame that if we have him only during this minuscule lifetime on this earth and not throughout the infinite, infinite, eternal age, then we would be miserable. If experiencing Jesus is so significant, and if we only have him then during this minuscule dot, this lifetime on this earth, and not throughout the infinite, eternal age, we would be miserable. But that's not the case. 1 Thessalonians 4, this is from a classic passage on the rapture. Verse 17, Then we who are alive and remain at this rapture, 
where Jesus descends from heaven and snatches us out off the earth, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them. Them, meaning these resurrected saints who are bodies are resurrected at the rapture and caught up. We shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord. This is the Lord Jesus Christ from the preceding verses. To meet the Lord in the air, that's the rapture, and thus we shall always, notice always, not sometimes, not most of the time, we shall always, meaning at all times, be with the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no reason we should be miserable here because our hope in Jesus is applicable to both now in this existence on this earth and then in heaven forever. Notice the definition. Focusing on the line and not the dot. This is the eternal perspective. Focusing on the line and not the dot means something said or something done from Christ-centered motivation our attitude does matter. Something said or something done from Christ-centered motivation intended to bring glorification to God and contribute to the betterment of man. That's the essence of the eternal perspective. Right now, at this moment, we all exist inside this dot. Remember, though, that what happens inside this dot determines what happens on the line. One more time. What happens inside this dot we are presently in determines what happens to us on this line. There are two critical words that transpire on this dot that determine what happens to us on the line. The first word is belief. Belief. To believe on Jesus Christ and receive Him as our Savior, meaning our forgiver, to receive Him after we have believed on Him means we get to join Him in heaven throughout that line. There is just one evangelistic book in the entire Bible. There is just one of the 66 total biblical books specifically addressed to non-Christians in an attempt to evangelize them, meaning in an attempt to convince them to become Christians. And that book is John's Gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Fourth book of the New Testament. Notice John 20, verse 30 and 31. And truly, Jesus did many other signs. Signs are miracles. And truly Jesus did many other miracles in the presence of his disciples as eyewitnesses, which are not written in this book. John just recorded eight miracles of Jesus. Jesus probably performed hundreds of miracles, but John recorded just eight of them. Verse 31, but these, meaning these eight miracles, are written in John's gospel that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, Christ means Messiah, that you may believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Son of God. The Son of God means God himself. He is a member of the triune Godhead. So these miracles are recorded so that after evaluating these miracles, we might believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah and Jesus is God in human form. And notice that believing you may have life in his name. Some form of the word believe is found more than 90 times in John's gospel because people, nothing else matters until we believe. To believe on Jesus means we experience, if to believe on Jesus in the dot means we experience heaven on the line. To not believe on Jesus in the dot means to experience hell on the line. It, it all comes down to believing. Second is behavior. Behavior, to behave as a Christian should conduct himself means we're going to experience actual rewards in heaven throughout that line. 
to behave as a Christian should conduct himself. I think there are two things that we need to always consider. One, do we resemble Jesus? Two, what are we doing for Jesus? That's behavior. How much do we resemble Jesus? How much are we Christ-like? And second, what are we doing for Jesus Christ? If we conduct ourselves and answer those questions, we're going to experience rewards in heaven throughout that infinite line. There are literally a million and one practical applications that can be extracted from this dot and line principle. From something as benign as giving someone a cup of cold water as per Mark 9 verse 41. Promises us a reward for doing that. To bringing someone in need a bag of groceries. To sending a crafted sympathy card to someone that is grieving. To teaching children in a Sunday school class. To flipping pancakes for the men's breakfast. To praying with someone to receive Jesus. To experiencing something as radical and sacrificial as martyrdom, meaning to die for our Christian faith. All of that and so, so much more is going to be rewarded as a treasure in heaven. I read about an extremely rich man who claimed to be a Christian, but he struggled in maintaining a conscious focus on heaven. He was dot-focused, not line-focused. He was so earth-conscious, he was determined to bring some of his material goods into the next life. God overheard his incessant praying, and God decided to make an exception for this man under one condition. Again, this is purely hypothetical. God said that this man could bring just one suitcase of valuables from earth to heaven after he passed. Just one suitcase. So, this rich man decided to fill up one suitcase with gold bullion bars. Solid gold. Heavy suitcase. The moment came when God called him to heaven. After his death, St. Peter greeted him at heaven's gate. He noticed his large suitcase, but he said, uh, he told him he couldn't bring his suitcase into heaven. He said, it's not permitted here. You can't bring something here. The man said, but I have special permission from God. Special permission? Are you serious? That is most unusual. That's never happened before. But okay, if God said you could, said St. Peter. Let me take a look at what you have. So this man opened up the suitcase to reveal the heavy bars of solid gold. St. Peter stepped back. He was shocked and said, I don't get it. I don't get it. If God said you could bring something to heaven, why would you bring pieces of pavement? <laughs> According to Revelation 21, verse 21, the streets in heaven are made from pure gold. The point is, nothing here on this earth can compete with heaven. People, it doesn't matter how good it gets on the dot. Phenomenal meals at a famous five-star restaurant. The honeymoon suite at the Maui Ritz-Carlton. A no-expense-spared shopping spree on Rodeo Drive. Raider season tickets in a premium suite at Elegant Stadium in Las Vegas, which doesn't attract me. Uh, it doesn't matter, though. It doesn't matter. It's nothing. None of it. It's nothing compared to heaven. That doesn't seem to matter to some people, though, because some people cannot get their focus off the dot. Some people cannot get their focus off the here and now. P.T. Barnum was one of those. He was a showman, businessman, entertainer, and scam artist. He founded the famous Barnum and Bailey Circus, billed as the greatest show on earth. The Ringling Brothers and Barnum Bailey Circus held its last show after being in business 146 years. The final performance was on May 21, 2017. Mr. Barnum died in 1891 and was buried in a cemetery he created himself. 
but to demonstrate where his focus was even at the end of his time on this earth. His last words were said to be, how were the receipts today at Madison Square Garden? I mean, the man is on his deathbed facing the line and he's still focusing on the dot. How foolish. Eddie Vedder, lead singer of the alternative rock band Pearl Jam, commented on religion and said, all I really believe in is this moment, like right now. That's actually an impossible statement. Because in a technical sense, this moment is so elusive, it barely exists. As soon as this moment happens, this moment has ceased to exist. As soon as this moment happens, it is no longer this moment. As soon as we recognize the present, then the present becomes the past. It is also elusive. So we need to start thinking ahead to the eternal state where time isn't something to be concerned about. The famous novelist C.S. Lewis, raised in church, then became a committed atheist, turned on the faith, became an atheist, and then he met Jesus and became a Christian. C.S. Lewis made this profound statement. If you read history, you will find the Christians who did the most for the present world were precisely those who thought most about the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. People, that is profound. We do have to exist on this earth, inside this dot. But remember the proverbial question my mother said to me often, what on earth are you doing for heaven's sake? <laughs> Good question. So are we content to just live for the dot or are we determined to live for the line? Is the reason we are still alive on this earth the dot or is it the line? Understand that if we have an eternal perspective, then it's the line. But if it's all about me and all about the here and now, then it's the dot. People, it just isn't smart to put most of our emphasis and effort into the dot when the line is an infinite distance longer than the dot. Financial planners, I don't have one at the moment, I could use one. Financial planners tell clients not to think about their investments three months from now, not to think about them so much three years from now, but to think about the state of those investments sometimes as far out as 30 years from now. But the ultimate investment counselor is Jesus Christ. And Jesus tells us to think about the dividends from our investments 30 billion years from now. Because although it is difficult to cram that concept of the infinite into our minuscule brains, we are going to be alive 30 billion years from now. The Christian's goal should be to live inside the dot, but live for the line. Malcolm Forbes, I don't have a picture. This was a last-minute insertion. Uh, trust me, he was not attractive. Um, Malcolm Forbes uh, was the multimillionaire publisher of Forbes magazine. He inherited that position from his father who started that publication. His son Steve Forbes probably sounds familiar. He is now the publisher. Steve Forbes is often interviewed on the Fox network. He is extremely pro-capitalist free enterprise person. Malcolm Forbes was known for his extravagant lifestyle, his collection of expensive homes, aircraft, yachts, motorcycles, Harley-Davidson's in particular, hot air balloons, an opulent, ostentatious, 
luxurious and lavish parties. An example of that was his 70th birthday party. This morning I asked Hopi, I said, what did I do on my 70th birthday? She couldn't remember. I remember I preached twice. It was a Sunday. That's the best thing I could have done on my birthday. His birthday was celebrated different than mine. He chartered a Boeing 747, a DC-8, and a Concorde jet, and flew in 800 guests, all of whom were rich and famous, politicians, heads of state, actors, actresses, other celebrities, and CEOs of multinational corporations. Party entertainment included 600 drummers, acrobats, and dancers. The festivities ended with a cavalry charge that included the firing of muskets into the air by 300 Berber horsemen. Berbers are a North African breed of horses. Get this. Party favors included a custom-engraved Rolex watch for each guest. Big party. Malcolm Forbes died just six months after that celebration. Why did I mention him? It is said, I'm sure it's debatable, it is said though, Mr. Forbes originated that slogan, he who dies with the most toys wins. It's doubtful he still holds to that philosophy. Listen to this. If someone devotes his entire existence to the dot, to acquiring and accumulating stuff in the dot, brand new stuff, expensive stuff, older antique stuff, classic stuff, custom-made stuff, stuff on sale, the latest model of stuff, better stuff than his neighbor's stuff. If someone devotes his entire existence to acquiring and accumulating stuff, if that is what someone's life basically consists of, then he doesn't win, people. He loses, because after he dies, all his stuff remains behind. Jim Elliott was one of the five missionaries martyred in the Ecuadorian jungles in 1956. In fact, we, we discussed that extensively in our discipleship class. It made international headlines. Nothing like that had happened before. Uh, these men were murdered, martyred by the Aka Indians who are a savage, savage group of people in the Ecuadorian jungle. Life magazine did an entire photo essay of those men in that mission. Jim Elliott made famous this quotation. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliot wanted to accumulate treasures. But the difference between him and most of us is that he wanted to accumulate treasures that he couldn't lose. He wanted his treasures to be accumulated in heaven because he understood that he was going to meet those treasures he sent on to heaven once he got there himself. The smartest thing to do is to invest in heaven, but that's not what most of us do. Listen to these U.S. statistics. The average adult parent shops six hours per week. That's in person and online six hours per week and spends only 40 minutes per week interacting with his children. The average person at age 20 has already seen one million commercials wanting him to purchase something. In a recent year, more people declared bankruptcy than graduated from college. In 90% of divorce cases, 90% spending issues were the principal problem. The reason these unfortunate statistics exist is because people are so dot conscious and not line conscious. But there are some exceptions to that statement.
Last time I mentioned Randy Alcorn. I'm not certain, but I believe he's the one that originated this dot and line illustration. This is on his website. There's a dot and then the line extending from that dot. And in large letters it reads, Life on earth is a dot. It begins, it ends. It's brief. Life in heaven is an unending line extending from that dot. We all live in the dot. If we're wise, if we're wise, we'll live for the line. Mr. Alcorn is a New York Times best-selling author and has authored 60 books translated into 70 languages that have sold millions and millions of copies. To demonstrate Mr. Alcorn's sincere commitment to that line, in 1990, he founded a nonprofit organization called, get this name, called Eternal Perspective Ministries. Meaning, on the line, ministries. According to that organization's website, Eternal Perspectives is committed to teaching biblical principles through books, website, social media, and speaking, and assisting the church in ministering to the unreached, the unfed, the unsupported, the unborn, the unreconciled, and the untrained, and doing so in countless countries. It's interesting that most authors keep book royalties for themselves, and that is not a wrong thing. Scripture teaches that the laborer is deserving of his wages. 1 Timothy 5, verse 18. Authors earn royalties from their publications and should be able to use those monies guilt-free for themselves. That is perfectly permissible, although Christian authors are still responsible to master the master's goods, manage the master's goods for the good of the master. But Mr. Alcorn is different. He, he doesn't have to do this. Most would never do this. I don't know that I would do this. But he is different because all his book royalties from all his publications go to eternal perspective ministries that in turn gives out 90% of those monies to other other deserving Christian people helping ministries and projects around the earth. The remaining 10% offsets the organization's operational costs. Eternal Perspectives, to date, has used Mr. Alcorn's book royalties to contribute more than $8 million to those causes. He practices what he preaches. He's living inside the dot, but he's living for the line. One more example, Bill Bright died in 2003 at age 81 from complications related to pulmonary fibrosis. Bill Bright was one of the most influential Christians from modern times. In 1951, he founded Campus Crusade for Christ on the campus of UCLA. In 2011, it changed its name to Crew and is the largest parachurch Christian organization in existence. It is operative in some 191 countries, get this, through a paid staff of 19,000 full-time employees and more than 225,000 trained volunteers, facilitating some 60 different ministries and projects, ranging from ministering to men and women in the armed forces, to meeting needs in poverty, ravaged inner cities, and on and on. In 1956, Bill Bright authored a small booklet called The Four Spiritual Laws, an evangelistic booklet that has since been translated into more than 200 languages and distributed to more than 2.5 billion, not million, 2.5 billion people, making it the most disseminated religious booklet of all time. But if that sounds impressive, listen to this. In 1979, Bill Bright commissioned the production of a documentary on the life of Jesus called The Jesus Film. That movie has been translated into more languages, 786 languages, 
and seen in more countries, more than 200 countries and territories, by more people, 5 billion people and still counting, more than any other movie ever made. Bill Bright was a man that had an eternal perspective on his treasures, and he challenged others to do the same thing. Let me mention just one example. Scott Lewis attended a conference where Bill Bright spoke. Mr. Bright challenged people, and especially he challenged businessmen to personally contribute $1 million themselves, $1 million to help fulfill the Great Commission. He had a legitimate right to issue that challenge because in 1996, Mr. Bright was himself presented with the prestigious Templeton Prize in Religion. And that prize consisted of $1 million. Bright donated that entire $1 million to the Christian cause. But that challenge amount was laughable to Scott Lewis as he sat there and listened because it was so outrageous and so above anything he could ever imagine doing since his machining business was generating him an annual income of just under $50,000. Afterwards, the men met. Bill said to Scott, how much do you did you contribute to the Lord last year? Now, I don't ask people that question. I've never asked people that question. Because giving is a personal, private matter and decision between someone and God. It is none of my business what someone has contributed. But Scott had approached Bill Bright about that challenge he issued, so that question was part of that conversation. He said, how much did you contribute to the Lord last year? Scott felt pretty good about his answer. He said, we gave $17,000, about 35% of our annual income. I might add, that is an impressive, impressive percentage. Only a minuscule, small percentage of Christians would ever even come close to doing that. But without hesitation, Bill didn't act impressed. Instead, he responded, okay, since you're a businessman, there's no lid on what you can earn. You have unlimited earning potential. Why don't you ask God to bless your business and next year set a goal of giving God $50,000? Scott thought Bill um, thought he hadn't understood what he just said. 50000 was more than he had made the entire previous year. But Scott and his wife decided to accept Bill's challenge and trusted God to do the impossible. It was amazing how God started to bless his business and provide. There was a last-minute, unexpected, miraculous December 31 provision that enabled the Lewises to give the full $50,000. The next year, both of them decided, after seeing God do what God did, to set another goal, and this time it was to contribute $100,000. And once again, God provided that practice of escalating their giving continued and continued until in 2001, God had so blessed Scott's business that the Lewises maintained a very comfortable existence and still passed the $1 million mark in their annual contributions. The article I read said, this couple has Absolutely no intentions of stopping that practice because, quote, giving is living for the line. Let's bow our heads. Question. Are you prepared for the line? The line is coming. The dot is small. The dot has a beginning, the dot has an ending. We're inside the dot, but the dot is small. Are you prepared for the line? Do you know if your dot ended today and your line started today after death, do you know you'd be in heaven? Do you know you would experience Jesus up close and personal in heaven? 
If you have any question about that, if there's even the slightest doubt or hesitation in that, I beg you, see me after the service and let's set up an appointment soon and settle this matter so you can give your life to Jesus so that you can experience him here in this life on the dot and then experience him forever and ever and ever throughout the line. For those of us who do have Jesus, are you living for the dot or are you living for the line? What is it? What are you doing? Father in heaven, um, talked about some pretty serious stuff here. We all are in the dot, but we're all, without exception, going to face the line. So God, I pray that you will prepare everyone in this room for that line. If there's anyone who isn't a believer, I pray they will be soon, very soon. And for the rest of us who are, I pray, God, that you will make us line conscious. Help us to remember, yes, we have needs here. We have priorities here. We have things to do here. But we are facing a line. We need to send treasures on ahead. Help us to do that. And I pray and I ask it all in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.